You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. It's interesting that these Hamas monsters who committed all these atrocities on October 7th were so proud of what they did, they went to the trouble of filming what they did. They used sophisticated cameras and they recorded the crimes that they did in graphic detail. As they carried out uh, this terrible onslaught, they took pains to document as much of it as possible because, among other things, they planned to cause additional psychological terror by letting the world know, and particularly Israel know, what they were doing, what they were capable of doing. This terrorist group even posted the horrific footage on its website. Unlike the Nazis, who went to great lengths to conceal their crimes, Hamas boasted of these things, leaving no doubt about the brutality and the scale of the attack that they had done this. And yet, and this is the odd thing, despite all this evidence, most of it produced by Hamas itself, there's a growing group of people who denied what happened on October 7th. According to the Washington Post, and I quote, a small but growing group denies the basic facts of the attacks, some argue the ambush was staged by the Israel, Israeli military to justify an invasion of Gaza. Others say that some 240 hostages that Hamas took were actually kidnapped by Israel, and some contend the United States is behind the plot. Unquote. That's from the Washington Post. So, Around the world, there are people who are armed with incorrect, little or no knowledge at all. And it could well be that many of this generation, they call it the TikTok generation, they're looking for a cause. These shallow fools only see things in binary terms, good versus evil, black versus white, oppressor versus underdog, and so forth. For them, the entire West, which includes Israel, the United States, and the United Kingdom, and part of Europe, is the oppressor, and therefore everything they do is bad. Hamas, on the other hand, represents the underdog, the oppressed, the oppressed Palestinian population, According to this twisted narrative, Israel can do no right, Hamas can do no wrong. That's how they see things. In all these um, protests you see, for example, the protests were held uh, holding up a Palestinian flag when the American president president attended an election campaign in Virginia. All over the West, particularly in the United States, all over the United States, there are demonstrations pro-Palestinian waving Palestinian flags. Unfortunately, in today's uh, current environment, uh, there there are many 
will swallow this, not stopping to question a single dot or comma in what's being said. Across cities in Europe, the United States, thousands if not millions have joined marches in support of Hamas and the Palestinian cause, whatever that is, parroting this mantra without knowing that, for example, they say, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Most of them, when asked, and, they, and they've been asked, they have no idea which river or which sea it refers to. The level of ignorance among demonstrators has been absolutely sag- staggering. And undoubtedly, Israel has a lot to do to present its case. The Palestinian flag has been featured in rallies and protests and riots all over the world. The, uh, it's interesting, but I want to say something about the Palestinian flag. I came across an article the other day that mentioned that in a twist of irony, one of the diplomats responsible for the creation of the Jewish state was also the creator of today's Palestinian flag. Sir Mark Sykes was a British diplomat, and he negotiated what was called the Sykes-Pico Agreement back in 1916 between England and France, which they divided up the Ottoman Empire uh, during the First World War. That's why, for example, Lebanon was given to the uh, French, and Palestine was given to the British. So what they did with this agreement in 1916 was they laid out their mutually agreed upon spheres of control over what had been the Ottoman Empire that was about to collapse. The agreement also led to the creation of Arab states like Iraq and Lebanon, uh, France's control of Syria, and the consensus that the Jewish people were entitled to their own state in Palestine. That's what led to the Balfour Declaration. Sykes, the British guy, knew the day would come when the British and the Allies would face the entire Ottoman Empire in war, and he understood that having an Arab force fighting alongside the British against the Ottomans would be advantageous for the British. And Sykes negotiated with uh, Hussein, uh, uh, Hussein bin Ali, who was the uh, who was the leader, the Emir, and what's now Arabian, he promised him an independent Arab state if he fought against the Ottomans. Then Sykes wanted to concretize the relationship and recognize that Arab nationalism was a necessary factor in order to inspire the Arabs to fight against the Turks. So Sykes designed an Arab flag, which today is known as the Palestinian flags, which is interesting, by the way, because Arabs themselves wouldn't identify as Palestinians for another 50 years. On October 7th, this year, one of the iconic photographs taken during the attack against Israel shows a Palestinian terrorist, hands raised high, standing on an Israeli tank near the Gaza-Israeli border. On one hand, he's holding a Palestinian flag. The, uh, the message of the picture is obvious that the Palestinians have conquered Israel. However, things have changed. Israel has responded. 
the uh, the so to many Israelis and others around the world, the Palestinian flag has become synonymous with the violence of October seventh. The ensuing war now Israel declared against Hamas and against Palestinian terrorists in the Gaza Strip. This is a battle for Israel's safety and security. Israel's sense of security was shattered on October 7th. The state of Israel was founded as a place of refugees for Jews from the anti-Semitism of the world. So therefore, Israel can never allow Palestinians in Gaza to invade Israel's borders and slaughter, rape, and kidnap its citizens again. Truth of the matter is that the future of the Jewish state and its people hangs in the balance of the war that we are now undergoing. All around the world today, Palestinians and their apologists have staged demonstrations and they've chanted from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, and the state of Israel, death to the Jews. The Besides the flying of the Palestinian flag, rallies have also featured the Nazi swastika. It's clear to anyone watching these rallies that their purpose is less about the war or Palestinian advancement than the hate of Israel and the Jews. That's the primary motivation. The the more innocent-sounding Palestinian demonstrations feature calls for a ceasefire. What they're really calling for is more violence against the Jewish people in the state of Israel. A a ceasefire now or any time before Hamas is defeated essentially rewards Hamas for what they did and encourages them to repeat the attacks. There couldn't be a more anti-Semitic call in response to this war than advocating for a situation that would cause more Jews to die at the hands of Palestinian terrorists. We cannot stop this war until Hamas is wiped out. Different people will draw different conclusions about the Palestinian flags being waved at these demonstrations. For example, Western progressives see this flag as a symbol of anti-imperialism. The, they calculate every conflict in the context of what they call the powerful versus the weak. The, uh, the, the, the West is powerful. The Palestinians are weak. You have to support the weak. They see Israel as having more power, more power than the Palestinians and conclude that the Israelis are to blame for the conflict and all the ills that the Palestinians suffer. They wave their Palestinian flags, convincing themselves that they are on the side of justice. They're all wrong. The Palestinians wave the Palestinian flag at rallies as a sign of resistance against what they call the oppressive Zionist regime. In other words, Israel. They imagine themselves, those who imagine themselves other than just being anti-Semitic, they see themselves as freedom fighters supporting the true battlers on the battlefield in Gaza. When they rally on behalf of the Palestinians, the West imagine is supporting the cause of freedom and justice. 
The West, unfortunately, is projecting its hopes and optimism for a Western-style democracy onto the Palestinians and their supporters. I see all kinds of articles written by so-called knowledgeable people in the West who describe what a democratic society the Palestinians will set up after this war is over. And so we have to stop the war, perhaps change some of the Palestinian leadership, but what the Palestinians really want, according to the Westerners, Westerners, is to have a free democratic society and to get rid of the terrorists and they themselves will create a democratic society. That's what the West, many people in the West, want to believe. I remember many years ago, President Bush, the second Bush, said, he made a comment, what do people around the world want? They want what we want. They want to live in peace and to have nice homes in the suburbs and just like we in America have. Because unfortunately, a lot of people, particularly in the United States, see the world through their own lenses. They don't realize or they don't want to realize that the world is made up of all kind of people with all kind of ideologies, ideologies and not everybody wants to be like the Americans. So, when they rally on behalf of the Palestinians, the West imagines it's supporting the cause of freedom and justice. Because what is the West really doing? It's projecting its optimism for a Western-style democracy onto the Palestinians and their supporters. They simply are wrong. The Western mind assumes that all people want the same things, they want the same benefits, and hold the same values as the Western world. In other words, I, I notice when I hear all the American diplomats, they think everybody in the world thinks like people who live in Kansas. Everybody in the world thinks like people think in the Middle West. And therefore, this is the kind of diplomatic a solution they try to push upon Israel. They're simply wrong. This is untrue. While the Western world was repulsed by the Palestinian murder and the kidnapping and the rape on October 7th, Palestinians the world over supported it at an alarming high rate. And the West Bank alone, support for what happened on October 7th and, and th these uh, surveys have been taken by Palestinian organizations, they support what happened by 80%. So just as Israelis have trouble separating Palestinian advocacy for a Palestinian state from the jihadist movement to destroy Israel, Israelis have trouble separating the Palestinian and Hamas flags. When Palestinian terrorists wave flags while committing the worst atrocities seen in the civilized world this century, Israelis, on the other hand, began association the Palestinian flag and the Palestinian cause with the barbarism of October 7th. This is the reality that we see. Well, with the Palestinian people's overwhelming support 
of the attacks on Israel and the Palestinian Authority's refusal to condemn the attacks, the Palestinians have done nothing to demonstrate to Israelis that their assumptions are wrong. What we believe that the Palestinians believe is what the Palestinians state that they believe. So the only reason it's quiet in the so-called West Bank is because the Israeli army is there. It is there absolutely every day of the week. Israel army takes action in places like Shechem, Nablus, uh, and Kalkilia, these cities that are in the, so the West Bank, and every day Israel has to go there to, to uh, fight terrorism, to arrest terrorists. As a matter of fact, I have personal knowledge without knowing the exact details because I have grandchildren, thank God they should be well and healthy, who are involved in the needs on Arab places in order to uh, find, they know who the terrorists are, and they have to go and pick them up and see to it that they're put in jail. So we have this going on all the time. So the Western world simply does not know what's going on here in Palestine, in Israel, and they simply think that everybody thinks like them. As I said a moment ago, the American presidents made this ridiculous statement, not ridiculous to him, to his listeners. What does the Arab want? The Arab Arab wants what an American wants. It is simply not true. What they want right now, and they have a lot of support in this, is they want to destroy the state of Israel and kill Jews. These are the facts on the ground. And it is this that we have to deal with. What the West has is a twisted narrative. And unfortunately, Hamas and its uh, propaganda arm has the West eating out of the palm of its hand. They think they play to the sympathy of the West because they know what it is that the West likes and they pretend that they really want the same thing. What they want to do is destroy the state of Israel and kill Jews. That's the bottom line. It is that that we have to deal with, and that is what our army is here to protect us from. And again, these are the facts on the ground. We face it, and hopefully, with God's help, we will continue to fight until we do away with Hamas completely despite all the that the Western diplomats are saying about some kind of agreement, we cannot leave Hamas existing at all in that areas that we're fighting over right now. That's the bottom line, and that's the truth that we have to live with. It's difficult, but it's real. It's reality. We can only deal with reality because our existence depends on it. I'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, 
spiritual growth and personal power. I uh, want to bring up a subject that's really under the headlines, but I think people should know about. And it has to do with the acknowledgement of women in their total knowledge and the place they can take uh, in determining halakha, Jewish law, and other matters that have been solely under the... um, under men for time immemorial, but we have a uh, Israel, a modern country, and in Israel has developed a lot doing having to do with women in religion. Over a hundred years ago, since the first assembly to elect the chief rabbi of Israel was convened, the High Court of Justice has ruled on the appointment of women to the chief rabbinate's electoral body and slots reserved for rabbis. In other words, there is a a committee composed of rabbis who choose the chief rabbis and other rabbis. Now, the Court of Justice has said that women, knowledgeable, knowledgeable women, can also be on this committee. The High Court ruled that according to existing law, there is no obstacle to the appointment of women to the assembly that elects the majority of the members of the Council of the Chief Rabbinate, provided, of course, that they have appropriate Torah and Lalachic education. So there is no impediment to appointing women who are knowledgeable in Torah and Jewish law to sit at the assembly like rabbis. And um, they, uh, even though they're not ordained as rabbis, but if they can prove their Torah knowledge. Now, the truth of the matter is, today we live in a time when nearly every day brings news of the significant contribution being made by women. There are women who are heroines on the home front. We're in the middle of a war. There are women who take care of their families for weeks on ends while their husbands are away in the army. And women are rising to fill many roles, particularly because of this war. So, by the way, we also have women serving on the front lines. Now, some of them are real, really heroes. We see that in the newspapers and the news all the time. It's therefore significant to recognize the accomplishments of women also on the spiritual front. For the, um, the years, years ago, women started entering the Beit Medrash, the very serious schools for women, many, many of whom are extremely well-versed in Jewish law, and they can serve as halakhic leaders. So the high court uh, of justice ruling is significant and that it is a critical recognition of women's education, women's knowledge, and integrating women into the sphere of Torah and halakha. And it's important to understand 
that though the initial ordinances related to electing uh, Chief Rabbi Rizzo stipulated that all members of the Electoral Assembly must be men, the High Court of Justice, Justice here in Israel ruled as early as 1988 that women may be not be excluded from the electoral body that chooses the, the chief rabbi. In practice, thus it seems now, women have served on the assembly charged with electing the chief rabbis for years, albeit in relatively small numbers. Now, recent years have seen an attempt to address the underrepresentation of women in this assembly to the appointment of of 10 public figures who are women representatives appointed by the religious services minister. Now, the heart of the issue is not to focus on female representation per se, but rather a larger question of who can fall under the expanded category of rabbis. Who's a rabbi? Who can be on the electoral assembly? And it's got to be based on Torah education and proficiency in halakha. Now, if we go back to the days before the establishment of the state, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook urged that the chief rabbi be chosen by an elected assembly made exclusively of rabbis. Ultimately, a compromise was reached which divided the composition of the electoral body into a large majority consisting of rabbis and a small minority of public representatives. And over the years, the ratio between the rabbis and the representatives uh, has been altered, but the rabbinic majority has remained. Now, a century century has passed, and today, women are a critical part of the world of Torah and Jewish legal discourse. It's not what it was a hundred years ago. Women are unable to take the official rabbinical organization exam. A woman cannot be officially become a rabbi. For many years already, there have been educational institutions offering women intensive halachic studies conducted at the highest level and with conventional commensurately high-level examinations. Over a year ago, for the first time, the Religious Service Ministry held examination to assess the halakhic knowledge of, of participants, women, and certificates were awarded to 15 women who passed this very rigorous examination. Now, despite this, the majority of seats in the Electoral Assembly designated for rabbis remains irrelevant for women because they are reserved for people serving as city, community, or council rabbis. Now, those positions require ordination, and they're held exclusively by men. But now the ruling of the High Court of Justice specifically addresses this, determined that there is no barrier for women to nonetheless be included under this designation. This is an important and clear statement by the court that halakhic Torah education not obtained to the rabbinate can still be recognized, giving de facto acknowledgement to the educational settings 
where women have been studying. This is a this is part of a long grassroots process. It all began with women who took their place in the Bespedrish, engaged in the study of Talmud and Halacha despite their learning not being acknowledged and despite having no indication of where it would lead. These women pursued this path simply because they were motivated by a, a desire to understand Jewish law. And over the years, they've acquired vast knowledge through their efforts and their commitment. And then, <coughs> recognition actually grew among the grassroots, initially in educational institutions and later even among the public. Because people started turning women with all kind of questions about Jewish law, halacha, and um, after a while, there were synagogues and communities began to incorporate incorporate these women into their leadership. There was a synagogue not far from where I live in Jerusalem, where the assistant to the rabbi was a woman. They called her rabbinats. So now we're witnessing a next crucial step in making women scholars an integral part of the public and religious fabric. They are now recognized by the establishment. So what we have is, after more than a decade of women being trained in Jewish law, we're seeing the beginnings of an intersection between what is happening in the field and the establishment. The appointment of women to lead religious councils, funding for women's spiritual leaders in communities, halachic examinations for women offered by the Religious Services Ministry, and now we have this ruling by the High Court of Justice. So we hope, of course, that these steps will open doors for women, women to serve the state in diverse and compensated religious positions. As long as the women are competent, their sex shouldn't matter. Competency is what counts. So we don't expect a uh, widespread appointment of women halachic leaders, so there's no requirement to appoint a minimum number of women. Nonetheless, the court, to its ruling, has established a crucial foundation for future potential advancements. Now, the, we don't know how long it'll take, but there's no doubt more and more women are going to be involved in the official religious part of this country. And uh, this, is, this is what happened in Israel, and it shows, <coughs> excuse me, it shows that the reality you know, it's, uh, I remember years ago, people in support of uh, edu Jewish education, they, they had an argument that really made a lot of sense. They said, essentially, women are more or less half the population. And you cannot eliminate half the population from gaining knowledge and using that knowledge for the good of the public. So slowly but surely, is being acknowledged that women have a serious position to take in religious life of the community.
So that's news, and um, I want to share it with the listeners. I want to change the subject now. We are already in the third month of this war. No end in sight. So what's happened is that as the war continues, the impatience appears to be gaining momentum, and uh, voices are calling for an end, and there are increasingly more uh, voices like this. They have all kind of arguments for ending the war. The primary one has to do with the fact that these hostages are still being held, and they want to see the hostages released. So the... uh, it's interesting. Before this war broke out, there was a uh, there was an argument here in Israel about uh, judicial reform, and it brought the country to the brink of civil war. And uh, everything changed with the Hamas invasion, and that dramatically altered the reality in which the state functions today. The uh, there's an, an index, there's something called the Jewish People Policy Institute, and uh, they did an index. I don't know how they measured it. I just see the results. It shows the trust in the prime minister that the government is very low, about 30%. These figures indicate that the current leadership's ability to rally public support for any kind of significant move has been severely diminished. However, according to traditional political wisdom, going to elections is inconceivable during a war. And if this is the case, it's better to stop the war to allow the people to have their democratic say in granting or denying confidence in the government to lead this on the next campaign. And that is one of the arguments you hear now, stop the war and have an election. But there is an opposing argument of massive weight. Ending the war before the overthrow of Hamas rule would likely expose Israel to existential security threats, and we might be back in war in a few years. Uh, Former Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion understood that because Israel is dwarfed by its enemy, right, uh, if you look at democratic terms, Israel has like less than 10 million people and our enemies have about 100 million. And if you look in terms of strategic depth, uh, uh, our enemies have hundreds of square kilometers this was a very small country. And in terms of financial resources, the, uh, they would t- try to destroy us. That is why deterrence is such a crucial element of Israel's security concept. Jabotinsky, the, the, uh, the famous uh, visionist leader of 100 years ago, said you have to erect an iron wall. It forestalls the next round of war as long as possible. Over time, if we really show strength, it may lead our enemies to despair at the prospect of destroying us. 
and that opens the possibility of signing further peace agreements. For, uh, for example, good example, back in the Yom Kippur War, uh, it ended up with our army 100 kilometers from Cairo, and it eventually brought us to a peace treaty with Egypt, which was the large, still remains the largest and most formidable of our neighbors. Ben-Gurion said that those who followed him realized that to maintain de deterrence, Israel must strive for nothing less than overwhelming victory in any war. That's the only way to stave off the next war and preserve the peace agreements and all the other alliances with various powers in the region. And if Israel loses its deterrence power, it might uh, entice many to attempt to annihilate us. We must be strong and show, exhibit our strength. So this is, as I understand it, the correct context for understanding strategic significance of the dilemma of whether to stop this war now or to press on. In, in the beginning of the war, Hamas handed a humiliating defeat to Israel that will not be forgotten. The advanced warning system, uh, which is a critical component of our national security concept, failed catastrophically on October 7th. But this one-off movement itself does not tip the scales in the overall balance of deterrence, which the the balance of deterrence derives from the results of war, not the causes. This is also the case in the Yom Kippur War, which began with the failure of the warning system, but ended with an overwhelming victory for Israel that strengthened Israel's deterrence and effectively uh, put us in a strategic reconfiguration in the region. So right now, I believe that the Israeli government was right in declaring that the goal of the Hamas that is essential to preserving Israeli deterrence, and to this end, the state of Israel mobilized since the war began now, very impressively. All the internal disputes occurring in Israel before October 7th disappeared. A quarter of a million IDF reservists were called up. Tens of thousands were evacuated from their homes in both the north and south to enable the war effort to deliver a crushing defeat to the enemy. So all around the world, people are active in their support or against Israel. Interestingly, <clears throat> Hamas, our enemy, <clears throat> has no air force, no strategic depth, no real, real state resources, it's difficult to subdue it quickly because of its sophisticated tunnel system. It cynically and unhesitatingly puts its citizens in harm's way, and because it has managed to turn kidnapped Israelis into human shields. But even Hamas surrenders delayed, its total collapse of the entity in control of the Gaza Strip is vitally essential to preserve Israel's return. Deterrence. If we have to destroy Hamas and send in a signal to the entire region 
that Israel is not vulnerable and the appetite to wipe us off the map must decrease. Ending this war without a decisive victory is tantamount to a a whale bleeding profusely in shark-infested waters. We must carry this war out to its end, and the end must be the destruction of Hamas, and the world must realize what happens afterwards is not the problem. The first thing is victory, and that's what we have to struggle for. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the terms genocide and holocaust. I read an article recently uh, which uh, called a lot of attention to these two words, and I want to share what I learned with the listeners. A lot of it uh, came as news to me. Much of it didn't. The um, the uh, Every time there is a death. It's not necessarily a holocaust, and not every bad person is a Nazi. Words are important. Throwing around words like genocide or holocaust should not be done casually. These words have meaning, and they should only be used in the sense of their meaning. Now, the word genocide historically well, it was very interesting. I, uh, I didn't know before. It was coined um, in 1943 by someone named Raphael Lemkin. He published the term for the first time in a book that he wrote called Axis Rule in Occupied Europe in 1943, in which he documented the Nazi murder of Jews. It was uh, Lemkin, it turned out, escaped from Poland. He found refuges in the United States, and he became the driving force behind the Genocide Convention. And he was motivated not only by the Holocaust, but actually uh, by the Armenian Genocide, which took place during World War I at the hands of the uh, Turks. That the, uh, as a matter of fact, it's interesting, here in the old city of Jerusalem, there's an Armenian quarter, and they have memorials to what the Turks did to them in World War I. Now, it turns out the word genocide is part Greek and part Latin. Genos is Greek for a family, a family or a clan, and Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, uses the word genos to mean family. And side, of course, from the Latin city, city, uh, sidium, which means to kill. So genocide means to kill clans, to kill families, to kill people. So that's what genocide is. 
The word Holocaust has very different derivation. After World War II ended, there emerged groups of people and historians committed to documenting what the Nazis had done to the Jews. Um, so the original term they used to describe these events, what the Nazis had done, was called the Catastrophe, with a capital C. The first Yad Vashem populations in English on the Holocaust were termed studies in, in the Catastrophe. The murder of Jews was first called the Catastrophe. However, the word Holocaust seems to have caught on, and that's the word that's now used. The word Holocaust derives from the Greek word Holocauston, which derives from the Hebrew word Ola. Ola is a sacrifice. The Hebrew word uh, Ola, very common, refers to a type of sacrifice that was completely consumed by fire in the temple. There are all kinds of um, sacrifices that were uh, in the temple, and sometimes these, the meat of the sacrifice was divided among the various priestly class or by the owners who brought the sacrifice. But an olah was a sacrifice that was burned completely. It was, in other words, straight, straight up to God. So uh, originally, the uh, so so the um, the original the original word in Hebrew to describe the Holocaust was called the Churban. Churban means destruction, and we talk about, for example, the destruction of the first camp temple or the destruction of the Temple Temple, and the word Churban. Uh, is the description what happened. The first temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the uh, Babylonians. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 common era, and that's the one they put us into the diaspora, which we're now in, or exile, if you will. So the word churban, uh, which means destruction, resonated in a way that connected the Holocaust to past Jewish catastrophes. Those searching for a better Hebrew term wanted to describe a unique historical event. And the Holocaust, what happened to the Jews in between 1939 and 1945, was a unique historical event. The word in Hebrew as in English needed to stand on its own. The, the, the description of the Holocaust had to be unique because the Holocaust was unique. It was at this stage that the word Shoah emerged as a common term in Hebrew to refer to the um, Holocaust. Now, the Genocide of Convention, was uh, signed in 1948, was established in order to prevent the atrocities that took place during the Holocaust from happening again. The Genocide Convention was signed by 152 countries, and it was a treaty. 
The text is unambiguous. It reads, acts committed with intent to destroy or in whole or in part a national, ethnical, religious, or racial group. That is the definition of a Holocaust. Now, interesting, the, uh, they, they just had the, in the International Court of Justice, the government of South Africa brought a case against Israel. Uh, in other words, uh, the South Africans accused Israel of perpetrating genocide against the people in Gaza. So the case is over so far. Uh, so, but I understand that was only the first stage of the case. There might be more. The intent was missing, the missing element in the charge brought by South Africa against Israel. Israel was not targeting a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. They were instead targeting a terrorist group and its leaders, Hamas. So they didn't fall under the definition of a uh, Holocaust, if you will, or genocide. The ruling from the International Court of Justice in the Hague referred to a humanitarian catastrophe that was taking place in Gaza because of the Israeli raid, but it came far short of calling it genocide for the simple reason that what Israel did in Gaza is simply not genocide. So South African charge uh, is, uh, is an abuse of the word genocide because the Genocide Convention defines what a genocide is. The um, so with the accusing Israel of genocide doesn't even does simply not fit into the definition of genocide, which I said simply wrapped up means acts committed with intent destroy or in whole or in part a natural ethnical racial or religious group, and that is not what Israel did in Gaza. It, Israel went there to get rid of a terrorist group that had attacked Israel. So what Israel did and is doing in Gaza is not genocide, because according to the Geneva Convention, genocide must include the following, killing members of a group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing members intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. This is what genocide is. This is not what Israel is, did and is doing in the Gaza Strip. The, uh, what, what's happening now is Israel doing self-defense. So whatever reason South Africa had for bringing this case against Israel in the International Court of Justice, I don't know what the reasons are. The, uh, 
it, it should be ashamed of itself or anybody else who says that Israel is penetrating a genocide. Israel is simply defending itself. Anybody who says that Israel is doing genocide is guilty of a false rhetoric. And the, the so they're... Uh, this invective and their condemnations have nothing to do with truth and justice. What the, well, this case that was brought against Israel, International Court of Justice, was simply a matter of anti-Semitism. Anybody who, who uh, supports what happened against Israel on October 7th is, is more actually guilty of genocide. The, the, the terrorists weren't there to simply kill Jews because they're Jews. That falls more under the different definition of genocide than what Israel is doing to defend itself. So I just wanted to share with the listeners the difference between these words and the difference of the meaning of these words is quite, quite a stark. Genocide and uh, is simply is no way can be used for what Israel is doing now. Israel is defending himself against people who themselves are guilty of genocide. So that word cannot be used against us. And the fact that South Africa brought a case like that against us in the International Court of Justice says something about South Africa more than it does about Israel. Also, by the way, almost along these same lines, it turns out that about uh, 67%, two-thirds of the young Americans, Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 believe the Jews as a class are oppressors and should be treated as such. And all this is according to a new poll conducted by Harris Insights and Analytics in Harvard University Center for American Political Studies. I mentioned this, I think, in one of my previous programs, but I have, now I have more information. A poll was conducted among about 2,000 registered voters in the United States, and they found that more than half, it seems like, like 51% of 18 to 24-year-olds believed that the long-term answer for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is and I quote, is to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians, unquote. However, another question in the poll asking if Israel has the right to exist, the uh, 69% believe that Israel does have the right to exist. So uh, that's this uh, group, 18 to 24-year-old group, which I think is today is a rather... Uh, ignorant group. Today they're busy uh, on the telephones more than they are in going to libraries or reading good literature. Bipartisan support for Israel among Americans in general remains high. Remains high. Right. Uh, according to the same poll that I mentioned, 63% of Democrats and 71% of Republicans believe that the U.S. should be supporting Israel in the war against Hamas. You see, uh, so support for aid to Israel is pretty much pretty high among both Republicans and Democrats. The uh, although more than half of independent voters oppose aid, 
Israel. The um, Additionally, I don't like to just push numbers, but 84%, according to this poll, believed that the October 7th massacre was a terrorist attack. Three quarters say it was genocidal, and 73% say it was not justified by the grievances of the Palestinians. So, the uh, it's interesting that uh, when these people, this group, this 18 to 24 year old group, is asked uh, if they support Israel over Hamas, uh, most Americans, like 81%, said they did support Israel over Hamas, but in the 80, 18 to 24 age group, only, about only half supported Israel against Hamas. The um, I don't want to go into and bore the listeners with all kind of numbers, but uh, the, it turns out that the, in all the um, surveys taken, uh, essentially what happens is that the older, if you're above the 18 to 40, 24-year-old group, you're more supportive of Israel. If you're in the 18 to 24-year-old group, you're not that supportive of Israel, which is bad, because uh, you know after all, what's going to happen relative to the to the next coming years, and uh, so the uh, the it's it's interesting. The the the, the they also ask the the um, they ask people uh, who they think should be running Gaza. And that's very funny because most of the people simply don't know. I I don't know how when they when these people uh, make these polls like Harris, do they do they ask the people themselves how much they know before they give an answer? Uh, my I have a general belief that the, most of the people don't know what's going on, and uh, so I think their answers are pretty much shot from the hip. That. And uh, so I, 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 even when I quote these polls, I sort of question their validity, but apparently people seem to think that they're important. And all, all this uh, information is interesting was the following. The poll asked, if a student calls for the genocide of Jews, does that student call for genocide of Jews or such should should such students face actions for violating university rules? More than half of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 replied that such a student should be told that they are free to call for genocide of Jews. Among all the uh, respondents, about three-quarters said such a student should face action for violating university rules. So I think that's the, of all the numbers I've I've told the listeners over the last few minutes, this is the most interesting, that the young Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 apparently know less about what's happening in the Middle East, and therefore they... They are willing to think that it's okay for the call for the murder of Jews. And that 
these are the, the citizens, citizens of the future in the United States, and that does not bode well for Israel. The That's the important number, I think, that uh, can be taken from all these surveys. Uh, It's interesting that the the students on the campuses in the United States now, I think, are not a very uh, knowledgeable group, and that doesn't stand well for Israel. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with uh, Jay Shapiro. At the end of the uh, previous section of my program, I spoke about um, the uh, attitude toward Israel uh, and various surveys taken. I want to continue a little bit on that subject. The, The American Department of Education has opened 12 new investigations into the handling of discrimination at colleges and school districts over the last month in the latest expansion of the uh, Department of Education's scrutiny of civil rights issues. And they're doing this since the outbreak of the Israeli-Hamas war on October 7th. Now, at least five, and, um, and certainly more, of the new investigations are related to anti-Semitism, which uh, the department, the U.S. Department of Education, vowed in October to combat on college campuses. Now, it turns out that Rutgers, which, by the way, I went the school I went to, Tulane, Santa Monica, Union College, Montana State University, are all facing allegations that they failed to respond adequately to anti-Semitism. A a school district in Georgia said its investigation was not related to anti-Semitism, while several other schools declined to say what their investigations concern. And again, these investigations are being uh, sponsored by the U.S. Department of Education. So, uh, so when the uh, when information was requested from a number of universities, like Stanford University and the University of California, they didn't respond for comments. So, what apparently what's happening is that the U.S. Department of Education Civil Rights Office has made a point of focusing on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And by the way, it's interesting. I doubt if there's much Islamophobia uh, in the United States, but since they're investigating anti-Semitism, they throw in Islamophobia too. The, um, there, there is a company called the Title VI, 
which prohibits discrimination based on several categories, including shared ancestry. Apparently, apparently this, uh, the, the Title VI is a little bit complicated, but uh, the, uh, the people who use it to make investigations, they can pretty much have a free hand to decide what they want to investigate. It turns out more than two dozen uh, cases have opened since October 7th, which, of course, is when Hamas attacked Israel. And the, uh, the, so a lot of concern now about the campus, campus anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned a moment ago, they talk about Islamophobia, but I think that's sort of uh, politically correct to add that to, sub, to anti-Semitism. Was, uh, I don't know why they don't want to single out anti-Semitism. Now, the, um, these Title VI cases involving allegations of discrimination toward Jews are brought by pro-Israel advocacy groups like the Brandeis Center for Human Rights uh, and the Lawfare Project. And um, these, these are... are um, are uh, advocacy groups that often seek to define anti-Zionist speech in university spaces and considers anti-Zionist as anti-Semitic. So uh, the Department, um, uh, the Department of Education, has initiated investigations with schools, and these have became very well known, of course, on TV. Now Harvard, Harvard and Columbia University and and um, and, and uh, MIT. So uh, opening an investigation doesn't mean that the department believes a complaint has merit, and the the agency doesn't disclose specifics about the investigation it initiates. It leaves the schools and the advocacy groups that may be involved in the case to fill in the details. But even the schools themselves say they're not always immediately aware of why they are being investigated. The, uh, it, it, it's not quite sure. It, 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 one of the education department spokespersons pointed to a November press release about anti-Semitism, Islamophobia investigation as context. That word context uh, became very famous during the investigation of the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard and uh, MIT. So, um, interesting, by the way, I, I did I myself attended the graduate school in Rutgers, and a spokesman for Rutgers, which is in uh, New Jersey, uh, it, it, it uh, had an investigation open several weeks ago and it told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency was over alleged incidents of harassment in October and November of students on the basis of their national origin. So, Rutgers announced it was suspending its, camp to, its campus chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine because of allegations of disruptive protests. The school suspended the law school student bar association because it tried to impeach a Jewish member over a message board battle about Israel and Hamas. So all these universities are suddenly finding that the, the anti-Semitism on their, uh, 
the uh, on their uh, campuses, and uh, I uh, I don't want to go into all the details. I have all these details on the desk in front of me. The uh, but you, I see, for example, uh, at, at Tulane University in New Orleans sponsored. They started an investigation. Uh, because there were pro-Palestinian rallies in near, uh, held near the university and uh, where people were arrested. And, uh, of course, the university spokesmen say anti-Semitism and other forms of hate have no place at the university. And the, um, the, the, uh, the same thing happened, for example, um, for Santa Monica College that it uh, told the uh, local newspaper its own investigation is underway. And there's a statement from Union College in Schenectady, New York. It has its own investigation. And so it turns out all over the United States, the the uh, universities are going through the motions of investigating uh, whether anti-Semitism is, is showing its ugly face on their campus. And the final analysis by the way the uh, Jewish Telegraphic Agency re made requests from all kind of colleges that had recent discrimination investigations open, and um, the universities have not responded. So uh, I guess the bottom line is there is um, a lot of you know, a lot of anti-Semitism on the university campuses in the United States, and supposedly it's being investigated. I'm sure we haven't heard the end of this. This is a new subject that got popularity since, uh, I don't know if popularity is the right word. Uh, it's got a lot of attention since uh, October 7th. And if anything really shows up uh, and I can find information, I'll, I'll uh, relate it to the listeners. Now I'd like to bring up another subject which really doesn't get much many headlines. And that has to do with the... Um, Arab students on the campuses of Israeli universities. You hear very little about that. I would take an example, for example, at Haifa University, the Arab, Arab Israelis make up half of the student body, and that's in uh, Haifa University. They make up a large uh, percentage of Hebrew University here in Jerusalem. I'm not sure how many. In a typical year, Jewish and Arab students from Muslim and Christian and Druze backgrounds study at Haifa University. The, it's interesting, it has a diverse campus environment, and Haifa is also a cultural center for Israeli Arabs, and it's known for a history of peaceful coexistence between the Jewish and Arab people who live there. Now, however, since the outbreak of the war on October 7th, uh, this atmosphere and around the campus apparently has changed. In the weeks after Hamas's invasion of Israel, the university took the unprecedented step of suspending eight Arab-Israeli students because of posts they put on social media and WhatsApp groups that were deemed to support terror. We're talking about Israeli Arab students on an Israeli campus, Haifa University. So they, they suspended these students, and now they're allowed to come back. 
and uh, their cases are undergoing what they call a mediation process, and uh, I'm not quite sure of uh, what, what all that means. The, uh, the, uh, it, it's not possible that students that supported terrorism will sit next to Jewish students, some of whose family members were murdered or are serving in the army. The, uh, there is, by the way, a thing called Abdallah, which is an Arab-Israeli legal rights nonprofit uh, uh, organization. And according to them, over 100 Arab students have been discipl disciplined for social media pro protests uh, related to the war. And uh, so this is a major problem. These, these Arab, Israeli Arabs uh, who express themselves on social media and universities are aware of them. So the, the, these kind of suspensions have, have a, a real impact at Haifa, where several campus community members have family uh, members killed uh, on October 7th. And one student's parents, uh, a student at Haifa University, his parents were kidnapped by Hamas. So... Uh, you can understand the feelings of the Jewish students when they see the Arabs coming out in support of Hamas. At Haifa University itself, about 1,500 students were called up reserve duty in this war now. And uh, some of them have now returned to the campus and they're carrying their guns with them uh, because that's military policy now. Uh, and generally, and I know myself from my own experience, when, you, when you're in the reserve and you go home, you have to hand in your guns and you pick them up again when you're called up for reserve duty again. But now it's quite common to see people walking around carrying weapons. So uh, in some of the universities, the classes are not really taking place. They're being uh, done on, on uh, they're being recorded so that soldiers on active duty can stay caught up. Uh, I know I have a, uh, I have a granddaughter who spends a couple of days each week in, in the reserve duty, but also she on the other days of the week she attends uh, uh, campus activities. So it's, it's a rough situation. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's very, very, uh, very Israeli. Say. The uh, the sight of armed students across campuses has a different effect on the students. Some say they feel good, uh, and uh, some say, uh, particularly Arab students, don't feel too happy about seeing uh, people on uh, on campus walk around with weapons. So, uh, according to a, a November survey of Arab and Jewish Israeli students uh, in uh, Haifa University, the most Jews and Arab students fear the other. This was uh, commissioned by the Ibn Rothschild Foundation, and as I said, they they said about twenty percent of Jews and Arabs fear each other to a high degree. The survey was taken weeks uh, after Arab students were evacuated from the dorms at Netanya Academy College uh, because Jewish residents rioted outside. 
and it also found that about uh, half the Arab students were considering not returning to school after the Tanya Academic <coughs> College. So there's a tremendous amount of tension between Arab <coughs> students and Jewish students. And of course, there were extremists on both sides, and they, make, they of course, make the situation uh, much worse. In the final analysis, what's happening on the campus in Haifa is uh, they have a, uh, they carry out messages on their t-shirts that say, continuing to study together. And they're also wearing orange bracelets by students on campus. They were handed out by professors and volunteers during class breaks at the start of the semester. So the bottom line in is a tremendous amount of tension uh, between the Jewish and the um, Arab students on the Haifa campus. So we'll see how it develops. The uh, The university administrations do, do is doing what it can to uh, calm things down. But uh, as the work continues in Gaza, it could have some... Uh, negative effects on what's happening on the campuses where there are mixed populations of Jews and Arabs. So we'll have to wait and see. Now on a totally different subject, and again, one that you find way beneath the headlines, but I search for these things so I can share them with the, my, list, my listeners since you don't hear these things from other areas. And it turns out that a former Archbishop of Canterbury urged the Christian community to align themselves with Israel, and he asserted that failure to do so would be a departure from the Christian faith. He said the following, the uh, Israel is under threat on a level that seems equal to anything that had to experience after 1948, Christian people must stand with Israel at this time. To do otherwise would be a rejection of our faith and our democracy. Uh, this was said by Lord Carey of Clinton. Uh, his name is George Carey, and he spoke during a European Coalition for Israel Emergency Summit. Uh, there was a meeting on global anti-Semitism, and the former Archbishop of Canterbury said we're not to be we're not to be totally surprised by the massacre, subsequent rise in anti-Semitism around the world. We've witnessed it that uh, the eve of ter- uh, uh, the ter- anti-Semitism again and again before and since the Holocaust. And he said, I'm not optimistic. So it's interesting that the uh, that a uh, non-Christian. Uh, uh, would make it, uh, I'm sorry, a Christian would make a comment like that. So what happened was the diplom- diplomats and and, um, and clergymen from all across Europe attended this meeting. It was held um, uh, just about two weeks ago at UN headquarters in Geneva. The World Jewish Congress co-hosted the summit, and uh, so they had all kinds of uh, evangelical Lutheran church and and uh, from from Germany, from France, from other cities in Europe, and uh, 
The Archbishop of Canterbury is responsible for areas of England south of the former counties of Cheshire and Yorkshire. If I have any British listeners, you know what that means. At any rate, the bottom line is the ex-Archbishop of Canterbury said that not, to not stand with Israel is to reject the Christian faith. And that's really a nice thought. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off. Thanks for listening. Let's hope we have better news next week. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel.